Ahoy, my name is Tim Wright and I'm not Brothers. Ahoy, my name is Lloyd Shepherd and I'm Rick Davis. And welcome, welcome, welcome to the Riddle of the Sands Adventure Club podcast number 25. The penultimate podcast. Well, yes, we're dealing with the events of the 25th of October in the classic spy thriller, The Riddle of the Sands. And this is our 25th podcast. Yes, about the 25th so of October. So we've been going through the book day by day. Because it's curiously specific about dates and locations. It is. It tells the cracking yarn of two gents, Carruthers and Davis, sailing from Flensburg yes. in, on the Baltic all the way to the uh, East Frisian Islands on the North Sea. And we're nearly at the last port the last of scene. call. The riddle is about to be revealed. Yes, in this, finally. In this very chapter. It does all happen very quickly, doesn't it, when it happens? That's what they've been mooning around, <laughs> chatting about stuff. They've <laughs> been mooning around. For like yeah. practically a month, yeah. haven't they? But Which is very well. In our case, practically a year. Practically <laughs> a year. But thematically, though, isn't it? It's about building threat, isn't it? So the th- it's all ah. about the threat of Germany, isn't it? So by the by, the time you get to the twenty fifth of October, you're thinking, what have they got? Have they got mechanical whales, or you know, or a super gun, or a super gun, or flying saucers? <laughs> but actually, they've got something else entirely, and um, we are going to reveal that today. It's quite a lot happens, doesn't quite it? Quite a lot to summarise actually what happens. First, the first thing to say is nothing happens to Davis. I'm not in this bit at all. I, I have to walk twenty miles and drink. Several beers, gin. I like to imagine Davis in a gin palace with, uh, with Clara Dolman. I'm trudging laughing, across the marsh. Laughing at the, laughing at the, the Muppet some, on the sands. I've got some terrible... So let's explain what happens on the 25th of October. Because uh, while it's nice to be out, I was th- I did in the end think, crikey. Yeah. It does say here, at 7 o'clock I was at Harger Station, very tired, wet and footsore, after covering nearly 20 miles, all told, since I left my bed in the lighter. So, so that, he spends the night before yeah, he's asleep a, in, a, in a lighter. Under a large roll of charpoil. Or a barge or whatever you want to call them. Barge lighters sort of somewhat interchangeable. We're, yeah. We'll come well, on to that. Yeah. Because, um, of course, there would have been barges and lighters on the canal, wouldn't there, Lloyd? <laughs> and we've also been having a long uh, debate about the navigability of the quote-unquote canals, which you and Childers insist on calling them, even though they're no such thing. Um, you call them ditches, They're don't ditches. You? <laughs> Ditches. Ditches versus canals. The drainage channels. So we'll be having a long debate about that later, <laughs> won't we? As we've been doing online all week. Yeah, and I see that various club members are lining up adjoining behind in, each side, in, aren't they? Joining in. He wakes up in his lighter. Yeah. He decides that he's going to walk to Dornham to catch the, yes, the train. A brisk walk of six miles. He's going to start his surveying of the various yeah, yeah. seals to see what he can find. Yeah. Yeah. And he decides the thing he'll do is what he did in Azen's is go to a beer house, quite sensibly in my mind. Of course. First thing to do in any town yeah. is find the pub. Is find the pub. So, so he goes straight to the pub. And on this occasion, he finds a terrible dockside crimp, and one of those foul sharks who prey on discharged sea. An ill looking rascal with shifty eyes and a debauched complexion. Exactly. And this guy won't leave him alone. No. So he has to take him to a gin house, tries yeah. to get rid of him there, doesn't get rid of him. Yeah. The guy's just said so he'll stagger with him all the way to Dornamazeel. Dornamazeel. So he gets in there, finds another bar there. The gas finally, finally loses him there. Yeah. So decides that he'll just sit on the sand until it gets to dark. I sat on my bundle with my back to the dike in partial shelter from the rain. Yeah. Watching the sea recede. And then he then decides, well, I better get back to Harger. Yeah. Avoiding roads and villages as long as it was light, I cut across country southwestwards. A dismal and laborious journey with oozy fens and knee-deep drains. Now, I've looked that all up. That's all still there. The Harker Teeth is still there. Yeah, I can yeah. do that walk. Okay. I don't particularly want to do that walk. 
doesn't sound any fun, does it? No, but he so he just, and, he, and he ends up at Harger Station, and then he gets to Norden in his disguise again. He manages to sit right next to von Bruning in the in the cafe, drinking a tankard of tawny Munich beer. He's been drinking all day with this other guy. He walks twenty miles, and the first thing he decides to have is another, another beer. beer. Well played. <laughs> so they get the train to Azens. Azens. Um, so if you can hear scratching behind you, by the ship's way, dog. Ship's dog has decided to go behind the sofa and make a ridiculous noise. Yeah. They reach Asians at eight fifty in the evening. Okay. Yeah. yeah Timetables. Yeah. yeah. They walk on. They leave the road and turn off to the right towards the Benzatief, yeah, the canal yeah, stroke yeah, ditch. Yeah. And he decides not to follow them. He says, well, they... "Ah, so hold on. So do you think that they're basically heading down to where the?" They're lighter he- is. They're heading down to where the lighter is, I think. Where he saw it before. The back, they're going back yeah, yeah. down to the barge to building the... place yeah, that he hung exactly, out in. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, okay. where, that's where they're going. Okay. So he, he decides, for some reason, unfathomable reason, decides not to follow them at this point and to walk back to Benzazil. I think he says, I judged it a wiser use of time and sinew to anticipate them at Benzazil by the shortest road, leaving them to reach it by way of the devious teeth. So he thinks they're walking down to the teeth yeah. to have a look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As right. to whether it's navigable or not, presumably, Lloyd. He doesn't know about that, though, at the most of this point, does he? <laughs> He'll soon find out whether it's navigable or not when he gets there. <laughs> I can tell you that. So he disapp- He goes, heads back north towards Benzazil. Yeah, and then he hangs around in the harbour, hiding from Grimm. He sees him there with the tug and the two giants. But he giants also sees he keeps a lighter about. there, doesn't he? When uh, he gets there. This is going to be important. Okay. Yeah, uh, I'm I know trying you. to find that quote now. The lighter, of course, that had been lying astern of us. Look, there it is. Yeah, but wh- where, where does that appear from? A company made up the tug left the harbour, but not alone. <laughs> While slowly gathering away, the hull checked all at once with a sharp jerk, recovered and increasing speed. We had something in tow. What? The lighter, the lighter of, of course, course, that had been that lying, lying astern of us. Where, where does that come It's like it just suddenly appears out of nowhere. He says, now I knew what was in that lighter. He said he checked it because I had been to sea half an hour ago. It was no lethal cargo. All right, so it's one of these two so, lighters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's there when yeah. he arrives. A half this is my load. point. Yeah. That's my point. There is an empty lighter in the harbour. No, it's not, it's not empty. It's it, got a half load of coal. Okay, it's got a half load of coal in it. It's a big bun. It's one of the two lighters. It's there I don't when, know where you're going with this. Uh, well, I'll tell you where I'm going with this. Uh, it, it's Why there, half a load? <laughs> it's, there, it's there when he arrives. Okay, it's my point. The lighter is in the harbour when he arrives. Why is this important to it you? It hasn't come up the bensity. <laughs> Why right? is that important to you? Because... You can't. We'll get on to this in a minute. This whole anyway, podcast is just going to be about why light- you're right about the teeth. <laughs> the, light- the lighter is there already, okay? The lighter is there already. Right. Yeah, okay. Yep. So what? So how did it get there? Up the teeth! <laughs> oh, well, okay, my second question then. As we're about to find out, the visitors that he sees at the station now appear on the, on the tug. Yes. They come aboard the tug. Yes. How did they get there? And the passengers? How did they get there? Well, I don't know. He's hiding in the boat. But how did they get to Bentasil from the from Mason's? They, they walked. They walked along the teeth. Yes. They he, didn't get a boat. They didn't get in a light. You're not. You're not contending they got in a boat. No. Okay. No. All right. The, the, what? It doesn't matter, does it? <laughs> it does. Because hold on. The, the, the point is, you have to ask yourself: Where was the lighter built? Yes, exactly. So the, the the point is, okay. Well, let's let's not leave it to them. We've been talking a lot about the navigability or otherwise of these yeah. channels. Okay, we've been talking a lot about the navigability. You said we were going to deal with this at the end of the no, podcast, no, but to, you can't. We need, to, to, have it. It we need to deal with it now. Okay. So the whole point of this book is the idea is that there are there are lighters, as in big barges, being built inland, in in at least one manufactory inland, 
and that those lighters are going to be filled with soldiers. Here we are, the spoiler alert. Yeah, yeah. They're going to be filled with soldiers and dragged across the North Sea to uh, the east coast of England. I was assisting at an experimental rehearsal of a great scene to be enacted perhaps in the near future. A scene when multitudes of seagoing lighters carrying full loads of soldiers, not half loads of coals, should issue simultaneously in seven ordered fleets from seven shallow outlets and under escort of the Imperial Navy traverse the North Sea and throw themselves bodily upon English shores. My point is... We got there in the end. We got there in the end. My point is this... He never explains. You've upset the dog <laughs> the now. He never explains how the lighters get from inland to the sea. It's never explained. Why does he you mean? are assuming you are assuming they're tugged or they're, they're they're somehow I don't know magically floated down these these channels to the, to the seals. Yeah. And I'm saying no, they're not because you can't do that because these seals are not designed to have boats. That, on that's them. a sort of self. Uh, confirming argument that you're yeah, I love those kind of things I love self-confirming arguments but in fact my point is well if if the lighter is there it must have been transported there yeah, it is fiction though no but what I'm saying is is this is this is this a hole in the in the story the idea that obviously the, the massive conspiracy seems to me to depend on building lots and lots of barges inland and then getting them to the sea Right, so we're going to we're going to have to do some we're going to have to do some club business gonna, well, right now. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have to, but we're also going to going to have to go and look because I this is going to be a really long podcast now. <laughs> I had loads of other interesting things to talk about, but now we're only going to talk about when this. When I wrote about this on my blog post, I couldn't find any evidence of there being Your any blog post any, <laughs> on riddleofthesands.net. <laughs> I couldn't find any evidence of there any being any boats on these channels. Anywhere. Well, Any photographic evidence? Ian Singh. The boats Singh. are all on the outside. Ian of... Singh. Go Ahoy, on. Ian. Hello. <laughs> he very helpfully says, yeah. I think there needs to be more of an exploration of German inshore vessels in the 19th century. Yeah. And a slightly better exploration than you watching one YouTube video, okay. I, may I say. All right. There's a useful 1971 article in Mariner's Mirror yeah. looking at German merchant marine vessels in 1869. So almost our time period. Yeah. This categorises the type of vessels in German service into five groups. Most interestingly, a category covering vessels of Dutch origin, primarily used in canal navigation. But there's also a category for riverine vessels. In Auric, in East Friesland, geographically germane... Nice phrase. Nicely done, Nicely done, There were 98 vessels, all suitable for use on inland waterways. All suitable for use on inland waterways, may I stress. And ranging from three to fifty tons, mainly flat-bottomed, narrow, and quite possibly the sort of things Childers might have been thinking about. Presumably, these vessels need to sail on something, and maybe the teeth were their natural habitat. Thank Al- you very much. And where is Alric Tim? On uh, the Ems Yarder Canal. It's on <laughs> the canal. That's why those boats were there. The canal that runs from east to west along the bottom of the Friesland Peninsula. Doesn't say that. No, but I looked it up. (laughs) Yes, but I proved last week that you can get to Alric from Ben Cecile. No, you proved on a map that that there are blue lines that join up. But if you see... I sent you an Instagram pic, Rocks Carruthers, by the way. Instagram. I sent you a picture of my beautifully drawn map. And it's a beautiful map with right angles in it. How many canals have you ever been on with a right angle in it? Well, you're being very British about that now. (laughs) 
<laughs> anyway, it's, uh, it's uh, so I, think, I mean I think Ian makes a good point, but I think the reason there are so many boats like that at Arik is because they're on the MZ Arda Canal. Do you know what the thing is? This is why we need to go, right? We need to go to so these places and we need to see them. Yeah. Because the only way we're going to we're going to demonstrate <laughs> get this in a boat is to get in a boat <laughs> okay. and try and go on one of these channels. But what I'm saying is, and I think Childers probably realised that this was impractical because he stops talking about it. No, he doesn't in the quite. Book, he, you he, see, you, and you're going to say something else here. Anyway, Ian says he suspects this one could run and run. <laughs> He's not wrong. Yeah. I just want to add one other thing here yeah. that, that comes from... Tony Neal. Ahoy, Tony. Ahoy, Tony. Haven't heard from him in a while. It's nice to hear from him again. Yeah, yeah. He came in on your side. Well, I will. he starts his whole post with the best words in the world, which are, I must agree with not Carruthers. <laughs> because he's got a gun to my <laughs> About the feasibility of using narrow and shallow waterways to move substantial loads. Yeah. Consider many of the canals in the north of England, only three or four feet deep and barely the width of two narrow boats. Yet huge tonnages of cargo were moved with very little effort. Yeah. On canals. <laughs> As I replied to Tony. I know, goes, you, just, you, you refuse to say that you're wrong. <laughs> because I'm I, not. You're not backing down. Because I'm not. I see this. But you referred to the epilogue, didn't you? I did. We, right. we, we were talking we're about rushing ahead a little there's bit. An there's an epilogue. an epilogue after the 26th of October. Some, we the then purport, talk about the... the purports to be a, a document Or a postscript, yes, yeah. as well. But yes, you say, you claimed, of course, that there was no mention of the canals, mm-hmm. which is rubbish. You just you ignore the bits that don't fit in with your narrative. So, I'm I put it to you this: all of these streams would have to be improved, deepened, and generally canalised. But that canalized, proves my point. Ostensibly with a commercial end for purposes of traffic with the islands, which are growing health resorts during a limited summer season. I put it to you, Malad, that fr- Childers realised these streams were not navigable. You no. realise quite no. He he's saying he's saying exactly what I've said, no, no, which is that they were they improved, deepened, and generally no, no, they would have for to commercial entities for to building be. wellness centres. They would have to be improved. They hadn't been improved. They weren't made into canals. They weren't canals. It proves my point. Childers says, and maybe Childers gets there. I've done this. I've done this in my books. You get you write your whole book. You go. Oh, hang on a minute. I've just realised that I've structured this whole narrative on the basis that you can navigate on these channels. And you can't. So therefore, I'm going to add an epilogue saying they would have to be canalised for all this to work. And yet that still leaves the question, how did the lighter, half full of coal, get from Azens to Bensasil? Because there was a canal. <laughs> it's I not a canal! How do you think they got all the bricks to the islands to build the wellness centres? By boat, by sea. No, 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 uh, no. From the Ems, what, from, from where did they get the bricks Yarda? from? Where did they get the bricks from? From Ems or Yarda. So how did they get from? How did they get from up a canal, a canal, canal to Auric? The Ems Yarda. Yeah, to Auric. So no, how did, they, how did the bricks get from Auric? No, to Ems. To Borkham. No, to Emden. They go by sea. No, they don't. Yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> this is brilliant. Well, I think that shows you why we have to get out yeah, there. Yeah, absolutely. Because we have or, to, or we have to get some kind of treatment. Anyway. Maybe this is the moment to say to people that if they go to Unbound, if, they, if they're still listening, if they go to Unbound.co.uk and support our book project, I will be able to take Not Carruthers out to the East Frisian Islands yes. and show him that these are not canals. And then we can write a long book about it. Unbound.co.uk slash Riddle of the Sands. Riddle of the Sands handbook. Anyway, but you've changed this. 
think so it's actually now. the unbound page is very good now because you've added a new video yeah. of us prancing about in here where we, it, we record better, this podcast I think and uh, some, some samples yeah from so you can actually see work some in stuff. progress I think generally it's a bit clearer a bit as to what the project what is yeah, yeah. until today until today where I realise right. the project is only only about, <laughs> about whether I'm right or you're right <laughs> about um, canals and so things. anyway so, so you're going to tell us now about amphibious warfare yeah so now you, having said there wouldn't be a lighter there it could, there couldn't be a lighter there now you're going to tell us that even if there was a lighter there there's no way that seaborne lighters could get across the North Sea well, and little, I, invade England I had a little look at the God, history, such a killjoy today the history of amphibious warfare okay, which okay. first recorded attack on, on an island seems to be on Malta Really? In 1565. By boats rowing from other boats and going, going, oh, I going see. ashore. Okay. Uh, Who was doing that then? Who was invading Malta? In Spanish. The oh, right. Uh, no, I beg your pardon. It was invaded by the Ottoman Turks and the Spanish went and got it back. Oh, right. Okay. But uh, there, was, there was not a huge amount of stuff about amphibious warfare. Uh, but there's more and more of it going on. Is that in, because, in the it's, because it does, doesn't happen it's very often? It's quite dangerous. Yeah. The, the most sort of dramatic kind of evidence of this around this time is obviously Gallipoli. Oh, now, the yeah. interesting The interesting thing about Gallipoli is... Oh. It's obviously Churchill's idea. Right? Yes. So Churchill had had a real bee in his bonnet that they were going to open another front against Germany, and it was decided that they would open the front in in uh, Gallipoli. But there was another option. There were two ideas before the Admiralty about where they might open another front. One of them was Gallipoli. Yeah. The other one was the East Frisian Islands. You kidding me? So there was You're serious kidding. talk about. Invading, really? uh, invading Borkum. The thought was it would knock Denmark out of the war, then it would be able to attack through Schleswig-Holstein. So, sort of t- turning Riddle of the Sands on its head. Right. Uh, and a lot of this came from some of the stuff that Childers was writing after after the book came out. Yeah. So actually, Churchill basically was was then wanted to, wanted to pursue one of these two things. He was Lord of the Lord of the Admiralty at the time, and they ended up in, deciding to go for Gallipoli. And the plan for Gallipoli was to to invade the. The, the peninsula, which is on the north side of the Dardanelles Straits, with essentially rowing boats. They'd row in. Seriously rowing boats. So and there's also... Fact, my only knowledge of Gallipoli, obviously, again, is film. Yeah. Is, uh, this Anzacs. is Mel Gibson. Did he Anzacs. row in? Was he rowing? I found this, this great article on Military History Monthly, militaryhistory.org, called Beach Madness. Stop um, eating plastic. Gallipoli dog. was an insanity triggered by First Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill's unwavering belief that the war could be won by attacking Turkey. Now... The point of this is that I'm trying to find the. It's, this is all very complicated. I won't go into it too much. But they had this mad idea that they would take a boat called the River Clyde, a 4,000 ton cargo ship. Okay, see if this reminds you of anything. It would drag lighters behind it that were hidden, so you couldn't see where they were, and it would be run aground, and there would be men hiding in the boat. This is 19. This isn't like 1780. This is 1915. There would be men hiding in the boat who would pour out onto the beach. And then the lighters would come round the outside and make a pontoon for them to run up across the beach from the back of the boat. Just an insane plan, right? Is and obviously it went, it goes completely wrong. Yeah. Um, now, one of the main reasons it goes completely wrong is because of another invention at the time, which we've talked about. The a machine lot. gun. The machine gun, right? So it's entire. You know, when you, when it's just men with muskets and swords running up on the beach in a rowing boat, as they used to do, is sort of you know entirely feasible. You might lose two or three, but basically you're going to be all right. When there's machine guns up on the headlands, machine gunning down on the beach. This is not a way to go. It right? doesn't work. So they get, they do get onto the beach eventually, but massive, a massive loss of life, including my great uncle. Which is why, this is why, oh, which gosh. is why, uh, yeah, my my great uncle Lloyd was killed there. Is so that my, who you're named after? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So a guy uh, who died at Gallipoli. Died at Gallipoli. I didn't know that. Yeah, Murray, yeah. That's so. Um, but the other thing oh. about that, there was also support from the air in Gallipoli. Now we talked about the Battle of Cuxhaven. Yes. Where, where Childers was the navigator. And got, got oh, right, yeah, yeah. Did you know he was also the navigator for the air support at Gallipoli? No. Erskine Childers. No. How did he get down there? <laughs> That's a hell of a plane, he right? There, he went there on on the boat called the Ben Mycree. Three words. So ben, he was at my, Gallipoli. He was at Gallipoli. But so he saw his, this. He saw. This. He saw the lighters from the air. Yeah. So having come up with this extraordinary scheme, stupid idea that you 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 don't think yeah. ever existed. Well, it turns out to have been quite. It turns true. out that Churchill believed in it. <laughs> Churchill believed in it. Tried to make it happen. It was a load of rubbish. <laughs> and you would have been shouting down from your plane, saying, "Where did you get it's, them lighters it's from? Not a canal. <laughs> Where did you get it's them? Not a canal. But I don't care that they're there. Where did you get them from?" <laughs> What happened then after Gallipoli is that, and this is where we get on sort of the D-Day, the, the, the kind of things we used to see in films, the Second World War, these big, self-powered, is the point, yes. self-powered the American craft with iron sides yeah. that were, were That's all developed because That's of That's all developed Gallipoli. after Gallipoli, because they go, well, we can't be rowing up on the beach anymore because the other guys have got machine guns. So you've forgotten the one we have mentioned before in the, a previous podcast when they're up at the Alsons Sound. The Alsons. Well, I looked at that. I looked at that again. Did, First the Germans did they not row across the Sound and they, invade Denmark that way? They did, but it was quite, it's, a, it's quite a narrow channel. Yes, true. Um, and what the, the main thing they did is they built a pontoon. So they got they got a headland up on the beach and then they, they strapped the boats together. And they basically ran across. Okay. Which is, uh, funnily enough, this is really off topic, but. It's exactly what Edward I did in Anglesey in the 13th century. <laughs> Built a pontoon. Is, that, the is that in a book where you're making stuff up? Also, also didn't end well. Is, it, is that, is that what's in a book, book I, the, well, you're, where, where up, you're yeah, doing yeah, yeah, research yeah. and then just making it up? I decided to go for a period in history where there were no canals <laughs> to avoid any... But plenty of dikes any and ditches. Any of dikes and ditches. Yeah, um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because the other the other thing I looked up when we were arguing about canals was the Norfolk Broads because we talked about the Norfolk Broads before. And I, yeah, and I kind of thought to myself, I don't actually know what the Norfolk Broads actually are. I didn't know before, and actually what they are is that they were de- peat was dug out in channels. Yeah, and then the sea rose and yeah. filled them up. So they're, well, so it's only in the last they're accidental navigation. It's only in my lifetime that that people have decided that they were man-made. So yeah. when I was a kid, yeah. They were considered to be a, yeah. a part of the natural yeah. landscape. It was, the, it was the academic research in the sixties. Yeah, and now everyone says, "Oh no, they were but they were built." They were dug. Up, well, they, they weren't built as they weren't built as channels. They were they were built. <laughs> <laughs> they, were built they were built to get the feet out. Yeah, funny how they're yeah. navigable though. Now, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Well, you, you can get all the way to Norwich with uh, stuff from Yarmouth, yeah, can't you? you can. That you could take bricks and coal and yeah. soldiers. Yeah, soldiers. Funny for the, that for the invasion yeah. of Norwich. For the invasion of Norwich. That's my novel right there. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I'm going to start with what this is about. Sit, is Sid? Sid, come here. What this is about is war, isn't it? War. I tell you, musical interlude. And that's war! And that's war! Get on the horses! On the horses! And it's war! Fredonia's gone to war. Each native son will grab a gun and run away to war. At last we're going to be the leader on the streets of war. At last the country's gone to war. At last the country's gone to war. This is a fact we can't ignore. We're going to war. This is a fact we can't ignore. Playing that, Duck Soup Brothers, Duck Soup, what a great film, great movie. Duck Soup generally 
it seems to me <laughs> there's lots of bits in it where you're thinking this is quite a little sad in a funny kind of way yeah. look here they are the two spies have you seen this bit These are my spies. Show them in. Have you seen them? <laughs> in disguise. <laughs> Very good. Gentlemen. These are the spies. Go back and watch this later. Two spies, duck suit. Now, um, okay, we'll start with the Marx Brothers and we'll end with the Marx Brothers. Okay, good, okay. Good. Uh, on my ramble this around quite, this disguises and pub crawls. What? This sounds quite planned. Oh, I've had a lot of time to think about this because uh, I've not we've not been listening to you about canals. <laughs> but let's start with the disguise business. I was a bit boggled by the fact that Carruthers puts on his disguise yeah. and he can practically walk up to Von yeah, Brunning yeah, yeah. and not be recognised. It's like Clark Kent and Superman, isn't it? It's quite weird, yeah. isn't it? But then I was thinking, does this happen a lot in books? And then realise it does happen quite a lot in books, doesn't yeah. it? Disguise is quite a That's common like Dickens, thing. Well, I found a Guardian list of the 10 best disguises in literature. Okay. Is that good or not? Yeah, very I good. Like, I like that. Who wrote it? Huh? John Mullen. Oh, right. Very good. Very John good. Mullen. John Mullen. So, yeah, got a bit of cred, isn't it? So, he's got number one, The Odyssey by Homer. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. Odysseus disguised as a beggar. He's recognised only by a ship's dog. Uh, number two is Measure for Measure, no, the Duke. Shakespeare. Yeah, it's a bit, you could do a loads of Shakespeare, yeah. couldn't you? I mean, so I don't know why he's picked Measure for Measure. Oh, uh, Monkey. I suppose he like, he's got a thing about monks, actually, because number three is The Monk by Matthew Lewis, which is not a book I know. No, me neither. Jane Eyre, yes, by Charlotte Bronte, yeah. one of the great episodes of transvesticism in literature when Rochester togs himself up as a gypsy woman. East Lynn by Mrs. Henry Wood, another book I've never heard of. Yeah. Lady Isabel Vane loses her happy home and family when she conducts an adulterous affair with the utterly caddish Francis Levin. Having learned the error of her ways, she returns to be governess to her own children, disguised by blue-lensed glasses. Hair turned white from shock after a train crash and a scarred mouth. That's that not a disguise. Awesome. That's, that's, that's uh, not a disguise. Uh, Mystery of Edwin Drood, he yeah, said Dickens. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Dick Datchery arriving in town. Apparently he's a detective with a wig on. Obviously a bit of Sherlock Holmes, the man with the twisted lip. There's lots of Sherlock Holmes, isn't there? Where yeah, he, he yeah, likes, yeah. He's a master of disguise. Yeah. Charlie's Aunt, obviously, yeah. by Brandon Thomas. The Third Girl by Agatha Christie. Yes, there's a fair bit of disguising going on in Agatha Christie, isn't there? Yeah. And Madame Doubtfire by yeah. Anne Fine. Now, he's missed, for me, probably the one that I would think is number one in my book. Go on, then. Is Mr. Toad in Wind in the Willows. <laughs> if you want a great moment of transvesticism... <laughs> Of the period. And then the other one person who he's missed, who I think is absolutely in the frame uh, of this period again, and I think maybe inspires a bit of disguising, you know, the idea of Carruthers disguising. We'll talk about who the other person he might yeah. disguise in a minute. Raffles, Gentleman oh, Thief. Yeah, yeah, very good. Lots of disguise in uh, Raffles. Never read it, I don't think. Oh, they're very good. Yeah, never read them. Very good. Well, I had not understood. I then going back and looking at it, written by Hornung. Mm. Um, I didn't know that Hornung was. Um, oh, dog! I didn't realise that he is Arthur Conan Doyle's brother-in-law. Really? And that he wrote these books, intending them as a form of flattery, but also as Raffles being a kind of and, anti-Holmes. Uh, yes, yes. He wrote them as a. Anti-Holmes thing to wind up his brother-in-law. I mean, to pay homage <laughs> to his brother-in-law, obviously. He wasn't going to wind him up. Why would he do Confessed that? Confessed brother-in-law. Why would he Very do that? Good. Yes, I've written a book too. 
I love that. That's idea. quite funny, isn't that. it? Arthur, I have news. <laughs> yes, I'd read your home. I read your home story. Very interesting. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. <laughs> have you read my raffles? <laughs> no, I bloody well haven't. And his sidekick, Harry Bunny Manders. Oh. And they're always getting into disguises. And it's all around this time of the 1890s and 1900s. So, disguises. And then, of course, he does actually make a particular reference, which you picked up on as well, to Cutliffe Hine. Being Cutliffe inspired Hine. by yeah, Cutliffe yeah, yeah, Hine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I hadn't heard of who he is. Well, I looked him up as well. I think we both looked him up, didn't we? Charles John Cutcliffe Wright Hine. Novelist also known by the pen name Weatherby Chesney. Good name. Oh, what a great yeah. name. Don't Pat, stop destroying things. Perhaps like best remembered as the author of The Lost Continent. Oh, I didn't know that. The story of Atlantis. Oh, right. Uh, okay. But he was also remembered for his Ke- Captain Kettle stories. Yeah, I'd never heard of these. He wrote a whole load of Captain, Captain Kettle. Honour of Thieves. Captain Kettle's bit. Now, there's quite an interesting uh, note on there because somebody else we've talked about before on this podcast, H.G. Wells. Yes. Uh, Woods's Captain Kettle bears a striking resemblance particularly in stance, the set of the head on the shoulders, his beard and the characteristic gaze, to the novelist Joseph Conrad. Yes. Also a sailor. Among the people who saw this remarkable similarity was H.G. Wells, whose War of the Worlds appeared in Pearson's in instalments alternating with the Captain Kettle stories. Really? Which is good, isn't it? That's all a good tie-up. But I also yeah. did, I noticed, because that Conrad thing, he said Conrad met Wells at just this time, read Pearson's, yeah, yeah. And borrowed whole phrases, key episodes and images from the Kettle stories for Heart of Darkness. Yeah. It's a bit odd, isn't it? That he took an action-adventure thing. Yeah. And I didn't know he'd stolen key episodes and whole phrases. Yeah, yeah, or literary... Look, or entire literary fiction is stolen from adventure books. We know that. That's incredible, yeah. isn't it? It's incredible. All goes back to Captain Kettle. Captain Kettle. <laughs> so, basically, he's strolling around the countryside trying to look like Joseph Conrad. Yeah. This is what exactly. <laughs> which, is, which is fantastic. Which is great. And you're rather hoping that Von Bruni's going to turn around and say, uh, Excuse me, are you Joseph Conrad? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm Captain Kettle. Now, I want to start the pub crawl now. Go on, yes, we're on to the booze. He starts in Dornham, okay? Yeah. And he starts with some local beer and he gets to a gin house. We're not doing that because we've done that before. I'm not going to make you drink that disgusting Geneva again. Because I don't think that I like the Dawncott though. The Dawncott was The Dawncott was very nice, actually, yeah. yes. But I don't think that's the kind of thing that would have been in the gin house that we're talking about with this no. dodgy geezer. Yeah. Anyway, I, I looked up Dornham. If you go to dornham.de for what the hell's going on in Dornham, because I was basically thinking, well, if I'm going to have to do this, let's, what are the bars in Dornham like? Yeah. Or, and on the way to Dornham. Yeah. Couldn't find very many at all. <laughs> Slightly disappointed. Is it a bit like Brunsbottle Sud? No, well, it's very family-oriented, I must say. I like the fact that they've got a portmanteau word for what people do in Dornum land, which is called Freilensen. Freilensen. Yeah. Which is a cross between Freizeit and Faulensen. Freizeit is free time. I don't know what Leisure. It's, it's, it's basically Freizeit is leisure and Faulensen is lazing. So it's a cross between leisure, leisure. and lazy. Lazy leisure. Yeah. So it doesn't look like a very active place. No, so that's what you get involved in when you're hanging around there is Freilinson. Okay, so, so that's what opposite, I'll be doing. It's the opposite today. of what Carruthers is doing. He's jumping huh? around. The uh, and they give away, these. they have these families who get to do a Freilinson holiday yeah. in Dornemer land. They always have quite weird music when they do this. Here, look, I found a video. Die Freilinson. So it's all very wholesome. It doesn't involve a pub crawl. 
They want to go to the Tag beach. Tag A day on the beach. Look at it. Oh, nice. That's that's why we're that's what we're talking about. I'll put this video up on the on the site. So this is a video about people walking to the beach. Yes. So th there's not a pub in sight. It's a very sober family having a very wholesome time. You know what else is in sight? Very disappointing. Any boats. So I was very disappointed by that. Yeah. They do have a very elaborate outdoor activity park for dogs. Do they? Yes, with all kinds of rides and stuff. They have a they have a more elaborate playground for the dogs than they have for the children. Fantastic. Hey, ship's dog. Now you've now you've gone to sleep. Asleep, no. Now you shut up. Just yeah. lying on top of my computer. <laughs> and they have a thing called Lency the Lazy Sock, <laughs> who is trans. <laughs> Lency the lazy sock. Yeah. Do you want to see a picture there? Do you know what's going on here? Lency the lazy sock. Which is very funny because in translation he's referred to as the likable slacker. So that's that's more like it. That's more like it. I'm going to go drinking with Lency the lazy sock, the likable slacker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And weirdly, when you go on holiday there, they offer you this deal, the tourist people that. If you for kids is if you hand in your mobile phone, they'll give you a little lazy sock doll to play with for the week. Oh, I imagine the kids go for that big time, don't they? <laughs> Swap my phone for a sock. Can you imagine my kids? I'd be a fool not to. Can you imagine our daughters? <laughs> yeah, no, I'll do that. <laughs> a sock. That on the 9th of October they have a straw bale rolling competition <laughs> in the area, and they do quite a lot of canal vaulting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very safe because there's no boats. <laughs> and it's very narrow. <laughs> I'll just feed you that line. Yeah. I just thought it didn't make you feel happy. So that's the okay. If there's so much bloody canal vaulting going on, <laughs> it means there can't possibly be a proper canal. It's obvious. Proves my point. It does. <laughs> but it does. <laughs> so who are we going to hang out with in Dortmund? It's Mr. Gallagher. It's Mr. Gallagher. As I live, why, it's my old pal, Mr. Sheen. <laughs> How long have you been here? I've been over here a year. It's the strangest country that I've ever seen. Oh, Mr. Sheen. Oh, Mr. Sheen. Over here, why, we can both live European. Yes? Ride around on camel's backs and we'll pay no income tax. Positively, Mr. Kelly, absolutely, Mr. Sheen. <laughs> Famous songs of the 1920s. Is this massive, massive seller? The key person is Mr. Sheen. Yeah, Al Sheen was a vaudeville guy. Yeah, 1868 to 1949. Stage name for the comedian Abraham Elisa Adolf Schoenberg. Yeah, where was he born? No, Dornham. No, Dornham, Germany, in 1868. So he's a Dornham man. Okay, he had a sister. A sister called Mina, Mina Schoenberg, and she is basically Minnie Marx, who is not just the mother of all the Marx brothers, but it was also their manager and put them together and, and sort of drove the whole act. act. They were a family act, weren't they? Before yeah, they yeah, but she, it was her idea and she was in charge of the whole thing. So he's the Marx brothers' uncle. He's the Marx brothers' uncle. And he comes from Dawn. They all hail from Dawn. So Mina must have come from Dawn as well. Exactly. Yeah, they yeah. left in 1880. Wow. They emigrated in 1880. Wow. So they would have still been Marx Brothers relatives hanging around in Dornham 
I put it to you in 1898. Possibly in the bar, do you not think? Is it recorded in Dornham, this uh, fact? Is there a plaque? Or uh, a, well, or the, a, the only they thing... all have funny moustaches once a year. <laughs> it's good though, isn't it? We should do. We should just do. I'm just delighted the idea that they might that you turn up there and that Carruthers is drinking with a Marx Brothers relative. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that a funny idea? That is very funny. I think that's good. The only record I could find about it, which is actually a really terrific story, I have to tell you. About, oh, of course, there are many, many terrific stories about Marx Brothers, but I found one about the time that Groucho Marx went back to Dornham. Right. Groucho Marx, during the summer of 1958, I found this on mentalfloss.com, by mm-hmm. the way. During the summer of 1958, Groucho and his You Bet Your Life director and friend Robert Duan toured Europe for six weeks. Groucho thought the timing was right for his 12 year old daughter, Melinda, to see a bit of the world. Groucho had been very close to his mother. She was instrumental in launching her son's careers and wanted Melinda to see Dornham, Germany, where her grandmother had been born. When they got to the little town of less than 5,000 people, the group wandered into a pub okay. to inquire as to the whereabouts of the city cemetery. Yeah. Dornham wasn't exactly a tourist hotspot, so the locals were understandably curious about the visitors from the US. When Groucho explained, he found that no one in the pub had heard of the famous Marx Brothers. After going through a couple of his routines, he left with new fans and directions to the cemetery just down the hill. In 1958. Yeah, this is good, isn't it? Right, now, the group arrived at the Dornham Cemetery in good spirits, but they quickly dissolved when they discovered that the entire Jewish section had been utterly destroyed, which includes the whole of the Marx family. Though they went to the church on the grounds to locate burial records for Groucho's grandparents and other relatives, the records were nowhere to be found. They destroyed the records as well. So he'd gone there with his daughter to find his family heritage and it had been completely wiped out in Dornham. So what did he do, Groucho? This is really amazing. Mm. Several days later, Groucho had his chauffeur take their party of five to East Berlin, declaring he wanted to see the remains of the bunker where Hitler committed suicide. Judith Dwan Hallett, now 70, recalls that the mood had very much changed Whereas Groucho had been passing the time between towns by singing and stopping the car to demand that the gang get out for silly photo ops, the ride to East Berlin was sombre. When they arrived, Hallett said, it was as if the war had happened the day before. Nothing had been cleaned up or repaired. Piles of rubble made the landscape look positively post-apocalyptic. The ruins of the Führer bunker were about 20 feet tall, but Groucho climbed to the top and proceeded to perform what Hallett called a frenetic Charleston for at least a minute or two in a gesture of defiance. Very good. When he was done, the legendary comedian requested that they leave Germany the next morning. The fun was gone. He basically danced on Hitler's grave after he'd been to Dornham and found that all his relatives' remains had been removed. Amazing. What a great story. So we're drinking with the Marx Brothers, I say. Very good. Now I'm going to lower the tone. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't exactly <laughs> academic. There is another sort of cultural reference to this area, because after he goes to Dornham, Dornham the Seal, yeah. he then goes, as we said, he hides out along yeah. the beach, and then he walks basically past Nesma Seal yeah. down there and gets to Harger and takes yeah. the station. Yeah. So I was looking up his route and seeing what else goes on there, and Nesma Seal is another place a bit like Dornham where there's not a lot going on but but I did find that they had made a movie there called the East Frisian Report 
Okay. Do you know about this? I don't know that. I don't know the working question. Okay. Let me explain. The East Region Report is a 1973 German sex comedy and road film. <laughs> Very good. Despite its title, the East Region Report is not a sex report film, but a Bavarian sex comedy film bringing in elements from East Frisian jokes. Shot mainly in and around Nesmesiel, the film brings two popular German regional stereotypes, Bavarians versus East Frisians, together. The film was sometimes known as Swedish Playgirls. Wow. <laughs> the plot is this. Basically, <laughs> a Munich nightclub owned by an East Frisian, Ossie Janssen, is in decline. He commissions two hard-headed Bavarians, nightclub director... Alois Musa and his raunchy wife Lisa to travel to East Frisia to recruit fresh girls. That's it. That's the story. Disturbingly, you can find this film on YouTube. The complete film is yeah. on there to watch. Yeah. Uh, people of a nervous disposition, please is it, is look it away NSFW? now. I found this clip, which I... Uh, you found this clip after doing extensive research. <laughs> well, there's two bits of it. It's, it's very Benny Hill. Is it's, it? It's sort of Benny Hill with proper bonking. Okay. And I say bonking because it's not like a so porn. It's like those uh, window It's confessions really of a it's 1973 porn. It's confession. Yeah, of a exactly. Type yeah. Stuff. So it's probably a bit more German, and there's a lot more sort of full frontal nudity. Okay. The censors were probably a little bit more relaxed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great music. Okay. Very much uh, Benny Hill. I'm expecting Michael York and Simon McCorkendale to appear any minute. So this is in the East Frisia. Yeah. Combi van. The man's house. It's carry on, isn't it? It's carry on. Out they come. Carruthers and Davis and Clara Dolman. So they're basically going around in a van looking for farm girls, East Frisian farm so girls. Take them back to a Munich nightclub. They're climbing up a toilet and they fall down a toilet. Oh, Seriously, you see their underwear. It's almost exactly the same time that they're making the Riddle of the Sands the film with Michael York's on the picture. So while they're, they're probably on the same dike somewhere up the road, aren't they? Literally. These two, this lot of... There's a man them. dressed in Bavarian gear. Exactly. They, they don't... No stereotypes... Go untouched here. It has a fantastic opening sequence where they're in the Munich nightclub. I mean, again, if you're easily offended, you mustn't watch this. Yeah. But basically, they're in a Munich nightclub, strip club, but it's obviously a, it's a variety club as well. Yeah. And basically, there's lots of women wandering around with no clothes on, the strippers. Yeah. Then the, the magician of the show yeah. comes in off, off stage and decides uh, with one of the women that they're going to just have sex on the table. Why not? Yeah. So she takes all her clothes off yeah. and is uh, in a state of high excitement while he's yeah. busy trying to get his clothes off. Yeah. And it's a very good gag, which is that basically he's still got all his magician's paraphernalia <laughs> on him. So when he get, tries to get undressed, he keeps producing like a, a whole flat, yeah. Yeah, a bunch of flowers, several doves, a, a white rabbit, a huge number of knotted handkerchiefs while they're trying to have sex. <laughs> It's very funny. It's a very good I idea. You, when I woke up this it's morning, it's a very good I idea. I didn't think I was going to be having this conversation. <laughs> I know. You wanted to just talk about canals. But I just wanted to talk about canals and barges. And then here, just to just to prove that... Is it famous film? 
in Germany. No, it's only famous. I, I don't think it is, but it's very famous in Nesmussil because it's a bit like if you watch Lovejoy and you're from Norfolk, you yeah. go, you only watch Lovejoy, you go, oh, I know, I know that where that is. Yeah. So basically, people know this film because they go. So we go to the fifty fifty fourth minute. Here we look. They go. Here's the garage out. So they filmed it all around this area. Is this music going all the way through? I hope so. <laughs> Look, windmill, tractors, being stuck behind tractors. It's all everything we know about the Norden. Norden. <laughs> it's another side to this story that I hadn't thought about no. earlier. Look, Norden. No, no. The yeah. Norden windmill. Windmill. So basically, we could do quite a lot of our location research, Lloyd, by watching this film. It looks quite nice in the summer, doesn't it? Yeah, and we could get a little van like yeah, that. A little camper van. You could wear the Bavarian costume. Thank you. <laughs> you could wear the... Uh... And they basically cruise around town trying to recruit women to come and work in their nightclub. It's so not right. It's not right. It's wrong. It's... Anyway. It's not right. I was not very, okay. As you can tell, I was very, very excited to have found that. Because it suddenly made the whole pub crawl seem a lot better that... I basically start with the Marx Brothers and end up in the East Friesian Report. I quite like that it was rolling up saying, we don't know anything about this place, but we've seen this film, dear East Friesian Report. Club business. Oh. Talked about Tony and Ian getting involved in the, the Great Canal debate of, the, uh, of 2016. Oh. You also got brought down a peg or two. Oh, I did. You I did. wrote a lot about submarine engineering. I wrote a post about how... Submarine engineers... It was a very good post. Well, but, but saying if you call someone a submarine engineer... is You said it's slightly dodgy. Yeah, it mean, yeah. means you're probably dodgy. Yeah. So I was supported in that. Adrian told us that, uh, thanks to Adrian, ahoy Adrian, made a very good point. He said here, he said it, it might not be clear to us now, but Burma's choice of career would have told the Edwardarina much about his character. A common view at the time was that because they were difficult to detect, these machines constituted an ungentlemanly and underhand way of doing battle, and so were not suitable for civilised nations. It's extraordinary, isn't it, given what's to come? Yeah. That, that kind of well to back that up I did find that the Royal Navy were not happy about it mm. so at the beginning of the 20th century the idea of submarine war was considered by senior personnel in the area to be underhand unfair and damned un-English yeah and that was by Admiral Sir Arthur Wilson VC 1901 about his own troops he didn't like it what damned did you, what did they think was going to happen damned un-English <laughs> people were just, just going to go oh yeah fair enough alright <laughs> We won't do it then. <laughs> so I felt I'd got away with it with Adrian's help, yeah. my post. But oh no. Oh, but I know. Oh no. I Brian know. contacted me on Twitter. And John. Uh, Rotzka Brothers, if you're interested. And John and on, the, on, the, on the blog. John Ironside said, One thing worries me about this sinister submarine engineer <laughs> label. What would a man who specialised in underwater structures say for a civilian harbour, railway bridge foundations, or indeed for wreck recovery, have been called in 1901? I, I certainly wonder if we're imputing a notoriety to this title that isn't necessarily warranted. I thought that was a beautifully worded comment. Yes. We've yeah. got some very erudite yeah, I know. It was a rather <laughs> elegant slapdown. <laughs> slapdown. <laughs> I replied to say that I thought I probably had gone too far. As I, well, actually, like a dope, I'd gone, oh, yeah, submarine, yeah. underwater. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean underwater vessel. Yeah, yeah. It could just be submarine. Under the, under the water. Duh. He's right to pull me up on that, I think think to some extent but I bothered to go and do a little bit of research about this mm. and I found some quite interesting stuff about the Selborne Fisher scheme mm. 
Act, which was basically that all engineers, they would have been called probably marine engineers, yeah. not submarine yeah. engineers, all engineers of all sorts, were treated like second-rate citizens, particularly in the Navy. You realise there would have been more and more engineers at sea because of, of more engines and machines. Engines. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it wasn't till 1902, i.e. just the time of this book, that Selborne Fisher's scheme in the Navy decided that they were going to basically combine the military and the engineering branches of the Royal Navy under one system. Before that, they weren't. So engineering officers, who had become increasingly important in the fleet as it became steadily more dependent on the machinery, were still largely looked down on by command officers. Admiral Fisher considered it would be better for the Navy if the two branches could be merged. and that, So that integration took place in 1903. Mm. Even just being an engineer to a Navy man was a bit, mm, you know... Well, not, quite one of, not quite one any, of us. Any job you got your hands dirty. Not a proper Officer sailor. Class. Not a proper sailor. Yeah. Now, one good thing that came out of this, out of my ignorance, was I went back and thought, well, then I'll go and look for a marine engineer. A submarine engineer. Yeah, yeah. as in, as in an, not, underwater, not an underwater engineer. Yeah. And I found one. Okay. And not only did I find one, but I found a German one yeah. living in London oh. at this time. Oh, Basically, there's a guy called Augustus Sieber. He started a, a company called Sieber Gorman Company, British company, developed diving equipment. So he turns up in, let's get this right, he, he's born in Saxony in 1788. Oh, so Our yeah. region. Exactly, yeah. He wow. fought at the Battle of Leipzig in wow. 1812, and he also fought at the Battle of Waterloo. Blimey. 1815. On which side? He was in the Prussian army, obviously, who were then our friends. Of course. And then after the war, so 1816, he came to London. He became a watchmaker, pocket watches, yeah. erotic pocket watches, possibly. Yeah. Then a gun maker. Well. Then an instrument maker. Yeah. Possibly. Yeah. Asthmatic, uh, not asthmatic. Prismatic. Prismatic. Asthmatic. Asthmatic. Asthmatic compasses. Asthmatic compasses. <laughs> yes, I'd like one of those. <laughs> he became famous for developing diving equipment from the 1830s onwards. The company, Sieber and Gorman, then carried on doing that. In 1876, it moved to Lambeth. Mm. Where we, what, where we where, are. Where what we is. Basically, on the site that is now St Thomas's Hospital. Really? Where my children were born. My son was born there, yeah. Right bang smack on top of that is where Sieber and Gorman made diving dresses for the gentlemen and, mm. and for the Navy. Mm. He designed the first oxygen rebreather. So they were really at the cutting edge yeah, yeah, yeah. of all this stuff. In their advertising, they were the first people to, to call themselves submarine engineers. So as, as John says, I think, yeah. it would be entirely expected that that sort of person would be working on a wreck. Exactly. Right. So my final little surprise to you is, Go on. this guy, Augustus Sieber, yeah. where do you think he's buried then? Not West Norwood. Yeah. Is it really? <laughs> the West Norwood connection, mate. Blimey. It all comes back to West Norwood. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yeah. Basically, the not dastardly submarine engineer yeah. is buried in basically Norwood. half a mile down the road. That's fantastic. <laughs> I love it. It's good, huh? That's really good. I'm pleased with that. So thank you, John. Yes. Because without you, you I would, would have not have done that. sent him down on another route. Yeah. Ahoy, Nick. Nick North. Oh, Nick North. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fr- he enjoyed our last podcast. He won't like this one. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, he said yes, that he 
yeah. He said the surprise revelation of the week that despite appearances, not Carruthers is evidently also not T.S. Eliot. Otherwise, he'd surely be familiar oh, with Bydecker. Well, absolutely, of course he would. Bydecker. Because yeah, I said, yeah. what's a Bydecker? We didn't know what a Bydecker I was very surprised you didn't know that, I must say. Well, I'm, I did an English degree, yeah. and I meant to know about T.S. Eliot. It's true. Yeah. There is a, basically a poem called Burbank with a Bydecker, yeah. Bleistein with a cigar. It's not a nice poem. It has the line, the rats are underneath the piles, the Jew is underneath the lot. Yeah. Sneakily anti-Semitic. It's, yeah. in the, it's sort of a nasty portrait yeah. of a moneyed Jew who doesn't understand proper European culture yeah. or something. And, and he only um, understands it via a Bidecker. Yeah, exactly. I don't recommend Burbank with a Bidecker, Nick, and I will brush over it. We're going to finish with a reading. Well, yeah, well done. Yeah, we haven't route. finished, we haven't finished. Haven't we? No, I've, no, I've got some stuff on Twitter I'd like to say. Oh, sorry, people. Yeah, ahoy to Ian again, who very funnily put uh, Riddle of the Sands through an auto-categorisation engine. Oh, did he? Yeah, yeah, to, to, about what it was about of words. And he said it's about a lot of other things, but it's not about ships. The word ships never turns up. Yeah. But I know it did seem to be about extremities and emergencies. Words seem to crop up. It seems to be about extremities and emergencies. And then Ian said, and terrifyingly, ejaculation. Ejaculation. I'd like to say ahoy to Ben. His handle is at one cold vibe. Because he has been catching up with the podcast. And then he has bothered to pledge his support to oh, the Unbound thank Project. You ben. Thank you, Ben. So thank you very much. We're halfway there, gang. We're yeah. halfway there. Yeah. And I'd also like to say thank you to Fiona on Facebook, who similarly liked the new video. And she said, I'm signed up and looking forward to the Vicarious Trump. So she's signed up as well. So thank you very Just much sign for up. doing that. Sign up, sign up, sign up, sign up. Yeah. And finally, ahoy Peter Belk, who've had before mm. on Twitter, who when I said, where can I get a tawny Munich beer in this town, mm. put me towards a place called Bierschenker. Which is a kind of Munich beer hall in the city of London. Ooh. We can go to. Where's that? Um, well, I'd have to look it up, but it's there. Uh, it, Does Michael Schenker play there? Well, let's hope so. Beer you, Schenker. You wouldn't enjoy that at all. No, no, I hate your music. <laughs> I hate your canals. I hate your music. I hate it all. They're not canals! I hate it all. <laughs> okay, so missions for next week. Well, it's the last day. Yeah, finally. It's the last day. Crikey. I don't know, what should we do for the last day? Well, we've got to talk about Rotom Island. Yeah. Because they sail past Rotom Island. Yeah. So we need to just talk about that route. That's going to be a bit tricky, isn't it? How we get from Nordenai yes. to Rotom Island to Osmohorn. Yes. If we don't have a boat. If we don't have a boat. <laughs> we've um, got to have a boat, haven't we? We've and then there seems to be a lot of talk in here about whether you go outside Rotom Island or inside whether you can navigate it. And I also put it to you that you can't get to Osmohorn anymore. It's not an open seaport anymore. That whole lagoon has been dammed off. Diked off. Dammed. Dammed, dammed I think. What well, seriously, a dike I think you can dam. drive across it. Anyway, it's trickier than... It's, it's a bit tricky. It is tricky. It it's is a little tricky. bit tricky. We might actually talk about sailing again, mm-hmm. which we haven't done for bloody weeks. Well, I'm going on my sailing course next month. Oh, brilliant. Well, I, but I think this is a debate. Club members, talk to us about... Do you sail outside Rotom or inside Rotom? Yeah, and can you get to Osmohorn? It certainly looks on the map like you would go around the outside. Exactly, it looks, tricky, it looks like it? there's deep water there. Yeah, yeah, but but we have to go on the inside because we have to find the exact point where Dolman Dolman disappears. Goes overboard. Goes overboard. It might be a good theme to talk about people who've gone overboard. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I did on canals. <laughs> Reading. I tightened my belt 
stamped my mud burdened boots and thank God for the Munich beer. I've got another bottle here, by the way. Excellent. Whither were they going from Ben Cecile and in what? And in what? Yeah. Was it a lighter? Mm. And how was I to follow them? These were nebulous questions. But I was in fettle for anything. Boat stealing was a bagatelle. Fortune I built smiled. No Ahoy, Davis. Ahoy, Carruthers. 